What a privilege we have to worship God today, and what a privilege we have to open up the Word. We're in our second week of our four-week study on Paul's letter to Philemon, and please open your Bibles and turn to that letter, and then uh, we're going to read verses 8 through 16, and stand with me, please, as we read God's Word, as we um, attend to what God is saying in His Word, and God is going to speak to us as we read the Word and as we meditate upon it. Philemon, verse 8. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you. Since I am such a person as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything, so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. And Lord God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you, Lord, that you're going to speak to us through it. And we thank you, Lord, that you are good and that you have something in store for us this morning. And we eagerly await uh, what you are going to give us. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So we are in week four of a four-week study of Paul's letter to Philemon. Now the story behind it is that there was this Christian named Philemon who lived at Colossae in the first century. The Colossian church met in his home. And he had a slave named Onesimus who ran away, most likely with some of his money. And the fact that Onesimus was a slave really doesn't tell us a lot about him. Slavery in the ancient world was a lot different than what we know from early American history. It wasn't race-specific. And a lot of people would voluntarily sell themselves into slavery to better their status in life, to raise their social and economic status. The majority of the workforce were slaves. And slaves were not limited to certain kind of jobs. For example, Onesimus could have been what we would call a professional, a doctor or a teacher. But whatever the case, he was under authority and he ran away. And that was a bad thing to do. It was a, a, a thing that was punishable by death in those days. And he ran to Rome. And in the providence of God, he met the Apostle Paul who was under house arrest due to his faith in Christ. And in his interactions with the Apostle Paul, the Apostle being the Christ-centered, gospel-focused man that he was, Paul leads him to Christ. Onesimus gets saved. He comes to saving faith in Christ. And we don't know how long Onesimus hung out with Paul in Rome. But we do know that it was the right thing for him to go back to where he had run from. 
But while he was with Paul in Rome, he gained a reputation of being a useful and faithful brother in Christ. And the purpose of Paul's letter, as he sends Tychicus and and Onesimus back with this letter, also carrying Ephesians and Colossians. And as they come back with this letter, the letter contains a request to forgive Onesimus. To forgive this returning slave who is now more than a slave, he is a a brother in Christ. That's the gist of the letter. That's the gist of the story. Now this letter is a model of forgiveness. It's a model of love. It's a model of tact. When you think about it, everyone deals with forgiveness. Everyone deals with the need to be forgiven and the need to forgive. So we need the message and you know you need to learn a lot about it because you know what life is like trying to be a forgiver. You know what life is like trying to forgive but also seeking forgiveness from others. So everybody deals with the need to be forgiven and to forgive. And so you know you can learn a lot from it. And you need the letter, uh, this, the message of this letter to get into your life. I know that about you. Now, the first seven verses we looked at last week, it contained Paul's greeting. It contained a thanksgiving for Philemon. It contained a prayer for Philemon in which his godly character was revealed. Uh, Paul describes Philemon as one who knows he's forgiven and then is ready and willing and able to forgive others. But now we come to verses 8 through 16, the sweet spot of the letter. And what do we find there? Paul's actual appeal on behalf of Onesimus. And it illustrates the beauty, uh, just the beautiful um, picture of forgiveness that God wants to bring about. And it's seen in the joining of, of A couple of things. The first word of the Christian life and the most unpopular Christian virtue. And it results, it culminates in the best illustration of Christian community. That's what we're going to see today. Now, these these verses are revealing something by inference without coming out and actually saying the actual word. But it, 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 re, it reveals by inference the first word of the Christian life. And that word is repentance. Repentance. John the Baptist, Jesus, and Peter all preached it. John the Baptist preached, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus started preaching, he started preaching the same thing. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Turn from your sins. Peter preached it. His first sermon ended with it. Repent and be baptized. Jesus told the seventh church in Revelation, be zealous and repent. See, verses 8 through 13 are saturated with the idea of Onesimus' repentance. God had got a hold of him. God had saved his soul, and he was a different man than he was before he ran. And when he ran, and when he first got to Rome, he was a different man. He had been transformed by the grace of God in Christ. See, verse 8 begins like this. He says, I have confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper. It shows us that what Paul is going to ask is good and right and appropriate. He says, I have confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, but I'm appealing to you. Verse 9, I am appealing to you 
uh, he is he's calling for action. He's exhorting him. He's encouraging him to go a certain way. And he does it twice. He uses this term appeal in verse 9 and verse 10. And he says he appeals to him not on the basis of his position as an apostle, but on the basis of God's agape love. He says, I appeal to you on the basis of love. Now, it does no good to force someone to do something against their will, even something good. They're going to rebel. But to sensitize Philemon even more to the cause, Paul uh, calls himself the aged. Uh, Hey, I'm Paul the aged, and I am a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Now, Paul was probably only around 60 at the time, so what was he saying calling himself aged? It's likely he was referring to prematurely aging due to what he had been through. The mileage had taken its toll. It's like when you go to your 30-year high school reunion or your 40-year high school reunion, there are some people, the mileage has just taken its toll. But see, the mileage in Paul's life was due to persecution, was due to beatings, imprisonments, long journeys, and he was older than his years. He was Paul the aged and a prisoner of Christ. And he appeals to him whom he calls in verse 10, my child. My, my child. He is, he is assuming a fatherly stance here. Uh, my child Onesimus. Now this is the first mention of Onesimus' name in the letter. Was Onesimus standing right there in front of Philemon? Was he waiting outside the door? We don't know. But, but Paul waits till till now to to say the name and he says it's he's my child onesimus he doesn't say your slave onesimus he says my child onesimus whom i have begotten in my imprisonment it signifies that paul led him to christ paul led him to faith in christ he says in verse 11 that he was formerly useless to you useless but now oh now is a different story now he's useful both to me and you See, Onesimus had become a Christian and had proved himself useful, minister to Paul. And so Paul makes a word play. It's, he's, you know, he's dealing with a heavy subject here, and so I think it's rather appropriate that he kind of lightens the mood a little bit and uses a word play on Onesimus' name. See, Onesimus' name was a common name for slaves, and it meant useful, profitable. But he was useless. He wasn't living up to his name. But he had become useful to both of them. Onesimus was useless to Philemon when he had run away. Couldn't do his job. Maybe he wasn't the best uh, you know, uh, worker before that. We don't know. Maybe he was useless in that capacity as well. But God made Onesimus useful. That's what getting saved does to a person. He lived up to his name because God changed his life. And so Paul says in verse 12, I've sent him back to you. I'm sending him back to you. Now he was obviously willing to go. He could have run away again. He was a runaway. (laughs) He was willing to be sent back. He was voluntarily going back. I have sent him back to you. But see, Philemon wasn't getting the same man back. He was transformed. He'd obey. He would obey Colossians. Look at Colossians chapter 3. The letter that that he was carrying with Tychicus. He would obey what it said in there 
regarding slaves. Look at uh, Colossians chapter 3 and verse 22. You think Paul had Onesimus in mind when he was writing this? Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth. That's what Onesimus was going to do now. Not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing God. That's the man that Philemon was getting back. Here's what he would do. Verse 23. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. Knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the reward of the inheritance. It's the Lord Christ whom you serve. Wow. Oh, and you know what? Uh, Philemon would need to remember Colossians 4.1. Masters. Now, again, we don't know if he read Colossians first and and there was a do not read until you read Colossians note on the letter or what. But masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Jesus is everyone's master. In the body of Christ. He says, I sent him back to you who is my very heart, as if he could rip out his own heart and hand it to him. The heart The word for the heart here means the seat of the emotions. It means the feelings. He felt deeply for his fellow brother in Christ. He was so attached to him, it was like like sending his own self. It was like sending a part of himself. He cared that much about him. He had become that attached to him. It says in verse 13, I wanted to keep him with me. He's useful to me. He could minister to me in my imprisonment. I could just see the Apostle Paul in the final weeks of his imprisonment in Rome before he would be released. He could use a guy like Onesimus. And he was sending him back because that was the right thing to do. But what would have helped him more was to have him with him, to minister to him in his imprisonment. He said, I wanted to to keep him there. I wanted to keep him so he would minister to me for the gospel's sake. See, it was for the sake of the gospel that Paul was imprisoned, and it was for the sake of the gospel that he appealed for Onesimus. It was right to send him back. Uh, Onesimus had repented of his sins before God, but he needed to deal with the pain he had caused here on earth. He needed to go own up to it, make amends. See, in human relationships, repentance and restitution very appropriately go hand in hand. So what exactly is repentance? This first word of the Christian life. I want to share with you two things about it. Uh, First, it's an initial response to God. Repentance is an initial response to God. You repent and believe. Repentance means turning around, finding your way home. The Greek word is metanoia. It means to have a change of mind, to have a regret or a remorse over your sin. And in the Bible, it always means a change for the better, never a change for the worse. (laughs) You don't repent of doing well. You just keep doing that, but you repent of doing bad. It refers to changing your mind about sin, which involves two things, really. A turning from sin and a turning to God. And the idea of repentance is a a change of attitude toward God and a change of actions in life. 
It involves confessing sin, admitting sin, uh, expressing remorse over sin, and forsaking the sin. Not just saying, oh, I sinned and I feel bad about it, I'm going to go do it again. But I, 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 I did it and I was wrong and I, and I, and I do feel bad about it and I'm not going to go there. Repentance is not primarily a feeling. Uh, it's a decision you make of your own free will. It's deciding that you were wrong in thinking that you could lead your own life and be your own God. It's deciding that you were wrong to ever think that you could be smart enough or rich enough or clever enough or powerful enough to ever save yourself or to do it on your own. It's deciding that the world has, taught, has told you nothing but lies. It's deciding that Jesus is right and he's telling you the truth. That's repentance. A complete about face that reorients a life. But repentance isn't just a one-time act. It is a way of life. Repentance is an initial response to God that leads to a way of life of repentance. Daily repentance. Moment-by-moment repentance. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.31, I die daily. Dying to self and living to God is a daily, moment-by-moment decision of the will. Repentance is a choice. It is a conscious decision to go home and keep heading that way. Go home and keep going that way. And God's kindness enables it every step of the way. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. God's kindness leads us to repentance. Towards Him. Repentance towards Him. But also repentance in going and making things right with those we've wronged. Some of you need to, to make a list. Maybe you became a believer recently. Maybe a long time ago, but you confessed your sins to God, you repented of them, but you never went and made things right with the people here on earth that you harmed. Make a list. And go to those people. And attempt to make things right. As far as possible on your part. Paul says, I die daily. See, the repentance of a, a daily repentance is the, is the idea that God's kindness leads you into it because he is good, because he is kind, because he is forgiving, and that when you come to him by faith, he does not uh, turn you away. He does not reject your intention to do what is right. He doesn't say, well, I don't want to forgive you. He always accepts the one with a broken heart over their sin. And so when you come to him in faith, he grants you solely on the basis of Christ's righteousness uh, the thing that you need so much, forgiveness, release. And if people reject your good intentions either to ask for forgiveness or to extend forgiveness, he never does. So you're enabled to engage in and to, to seek that most unpopular of Christian virtues. C.S. Lewis said, everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. Philemon was coming face to face with that. He had something to forgive. It was walking towards him 
on the dusty road from Rome. He had something to forgive, and he was reading this letter. And Paul says in verse 14, Without your consent, I didn't want to do anything so that your goodness would not be, as it were, by compulsion. Forced, but of your own free will. Spontaneous, not forced. And someone asked me recently, how can we get people to forgive? How can we get people to forgive? And I say, you can lead a, a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. You can't get people to forgive. But God can use you. You can appeal, as Paul is doing here, you can appeal to them, you can encourage them, you can exhort them to do what is right. But the Holy Spirit does a work of grace in their heart so they want to forgive. If I forgive, it's not because somebody kept haranguing me and telling me I need to do it. It's because God works in my heart softening my heart, reminding me of what he has forgiven me of, and in turn I can offer that same forgiveness in a very much smaller way to someone who's wronged me. See, it hurts the fellowship when people don't forgive. We're members of one another, brothers, sisters, and God wants us to do what is proper for his sake and for ours. Now, Philemon's goodness, it says here he doesn't want his Uh, goodness to be forced his goodness would be granting forgiveness to onesimus accepting him back forgiveness is granting freedom from a debt and that's what he would do for onesimus he would give him pardon he would release him from the burden that sin had created so in that idea of of granting freedom from a debt you you assume responsibility for that debt And you free the person from everything you have against them because of what they did. It doesn't take away the the, the need for consequences or restitution. But, relationally, you no longer relate to them on the basis of what they did wrong. See, just like repentance, forgiveness isn't a standalone act. It's a process. Forgiveness is a process. You let it go. And then you continue to let it go each time you remember it. Each time you remember the offense, you choose not to relate to the person on the basis of that sin. Now, sitting here today, you may feel that forgiveness for certain things is too overwhelming to consider due to the magnitude of what happened. But why not start with something smaller and get your feet wet? Why not start right here in this room? Is there anyone in this room that you need to ask forgiveness of? Is there anyone in this room that you need to forgive? Do that. Then go up, then go up, then, uh, you know, go to the, graduate to the biggies. Because there are things And we all hold them. Things that we need to either go and ask forgiveness of someone else or we need to forgive someone for. I know that about all of us because we are all human beings. (laughs) Now, is repentance necessary for forgiveness? 
Is repentance necessary for forgiveness? I've been wrestling with this question all week. It's a good thing about having a four-week series. If I miss something, or I can always go correct it the next week or, or add it back in. But here's my understanding of it. It's not necessary for forgiveness to be offered or extended. Repentance is not necessary for forgiveness to be offered or extended. Jesus said while he was on the cross, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Now, were they forgiven? I can answer that question. Um, But we're going to go on. Uh, But it's it's not necessary for forgiveness to be offered or extended, but it's necessary for forgiveness to be applied or appropriated. Okay? Uh, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. Here's the idea. In a relationship with God, you must repent to be forgiven. To be in a state of forgiveness, to enjoy the blessings of forgiveness that has been offered in Christ. But humanly speaking, there is sometimes repentance, but no forgiveness. You repent and the person won't forgive you. And sometimes there is forgiveness, but there's no repentance. That you can forgive someone for what they did to you, though they never will admit that they did it, And never say a word about it. They might deny that they did anything wrong. And you're standing there with a bloody nose. (laughs) No, you punched me in the face. No, I didn't. Now, this is a tough thing. Um, See, what what if they never repent? Do I still need to forgive them? What if they never repent? Do you still need to forgive? Luke chapter 17. Luke 17, verse 1. It's always good to go to see what Jesus says. Jesus is talking about stumbling blocks. He's talking about not causing little ones to stumble. And in verse 3, he says, Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. Now it it sounds like Jesus is saying, only if they repent are you supposed to forgive. Let's go to Matthew 18. Matthew 18. In the context of church discipline, Matthew 18, verse 15. He says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, there's the repentance, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, there, now, it doesn't say anything about forgiveness here. It just says if you, if you show your brother his fault and he listens, you've won him over. You become 
reconciled to your brother. What that presupposes is repentance and forgiveness and a reconciled relationship. Okay, but go to verse 21. Peter comes to Jesus with a question. And he says, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And he says, up to seven times? He threw in a few more for good measure in those days. You didn't have to forgive him that many times. And Jesus says, I don't say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Basically without limit, okay? Basically without limit. So Peter is saying, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And Jesus says, unlimited. There's our answer right there. Um, He tells this this, uh, story about a, about a king and about uh, a servant that owed him a huge sum of money and he forgave the debt. And the same servant went out and found a guy who owed him like a, a very small sum and he wouldn't forgive the debt and he th- had the guy thrown in jail. Now look at what Jesus says about that. Jesus says in verse 35, My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Now, here's the deal. It would be really easy for us to to say, well, you know what? Uh, Humanly speaking, if, if if they repent, I'll forgive. It's fair, you know. But this is a lot harder for us. So what Jesus is pointing to is if they come to you and they repent, Oh, yeah, forgive them. And if they don't come to you and they don't repent, yeah, forgive them. Uh, Whoever is aware is responsible. If you're the one that's been wronged and the other person's not making any moves towards you to reconcile, it's your responsibility to go. Now that cuts against the grain of our thinking. It turns things upside down. Well, how many times did Jesus do that? (laughs) Every time you turn around, you see Jesus turning the common wisdom upside down. See, repentance is within the control of the offender. All right? You can't make him repent. Forgiveness is within the control of the offended. The goal is reconciliation between two parties who are at odds. That's what the, the goal would be. It doesn't always happen, though. See? Now, the best illustration of Christian community is when both repentance and forgiveness are present because it fosters reconciliation. Both things must be present for reconciliation to occur. You're not going to have any reconciliation if you come to someone and say, I repent, I was wrong, forgive me, and they look at you and they say, Really? It's not going to happen. No reconciliation there. Same thing. If the person comes to you and says, I'm willing to forgive you, and you you say, for what? (laughs) Not going to happen. No reconciliation. See, reconciliation means to have a change of attitude or relationship. It's the idea of taking away enmity, hostility, resentment, anger, letting it go. See, Paul says in verse 15, He sees a higher purpose. He says, perhaps, perhaps Onesimus was for this reason separated from you for a while 
that you would have him back forever, back for good, for eternity, as a brother in Christ, reconciled. See? Now, verse 16, he says, no longer as a slave. Now, he did not say no longer a slave. He says no longer as a slave, but more than a slave. Probably still a slave. But now a brother who happens to be a slave. A brother in Christ. See, Onesimus had repented, and the ball now was in Philemon's court. To be reconciled, he had to forgive. You see? He, to, rec- to be reconciled in this relationship, Philemon had to do his part. And Paul saw God's purpose in the whole situation. God wanted Philemon to view it in the broadest possible perspective. The providence of God. And Paul didn't claim to know all of God's ideas and ways and purposes, but he is suggesting, he says, perhaps, perhaps, he suggests that God had a hand in the matter and used it to accomplish a greater good. God will use even the wrath of man to praise him. So beyond Onesimus' schemes was a purpose far greater and he would no longer be a, merely a slave, though that may still be his legal status. He was now a beloved brother in the Lord that, um, that Philemon was to welcome back. But see here, repentance was evidenced. Forgiveness was needed. And that would result in reconciliation. The full beauty of forgiveness then would come to full blossom. Reconciliation removes something it removes alienation you're at odds with someone they did you wrong you hate them and you're alienated you sit on different sides of the room or you get as far away from the person as you can maybe you move to a different part of the country with regard to human relations if you've sinned you you humble yourself and you ask for forgiveness that's that's the proper thing to do And if you're the offended party, you are to forgive whether there's repentance or not. It's tough, but it's good and it's right. See, what if you repent and ask for forgiveness and the person doesn't want to forgive you? You, Again, you can't make them. And what if you're willing to forgive and the person never repents or even admits they did anything wrong? Again, you can't do their part. You can only do your part. You're not going to be held accountable for somebody else's part their responsibility, you need to forgive them. And if they don't repent, there's no reconciliation. But you've done your part. Now what if someone has died and you need to ask forgiveness or you need to forgive and you can't reconcile with them because they're dead? What do you do there? Well, you forgive them and then find a trusted brother or sister in Christ or family member that you can talk to about it And let them know about it. Just talk to them. You've already talked to God, but talk to somebody here on earth. And just let them know what's going on. And share it with them. And then leave the matter in God's hands. Gives you a little bit of closure. See, Romans 12, 18 says, As far as possible, as far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. But just your part. You can't do their part. But see, forgiveness and repentance both need to happen for reconciliation to take place. And they don't always, but it's the goal. But do what you can and leave the outcome to God. The beauty of forgiveness is when both parties change. Reconciliation has been called the central concept of Christianity. 
because it's central to the gospel message. That go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 18. It just speaks about uh, anyone being in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away, new things have come. And then verse 18, all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. See, sin separates us from God, and our sin is hostility towards God. And God cannot accept sinful man into his presence because he is holy. And he has a holy anger, a holy and righteous and appropriate anger towards sin, against sin. And his wrath against sin had to be appeased. And in Christ's sacrifice on the cross, God did just that. He appeased his anger against our sin. Put Jesus on the cross, put on him all the sins of the world, and it removed the enmity that was all ours. It satisfied God's righteous judgment against sin, and it resulted in the offer of reconciliation. See, God is the preeminent reconciler because he both leads us to repentance and offers us forgiveness and did what was necessary for reconciliation to even be a possibility we don't make any moves towards god he in his grace draws us to himself in his kindness see when you repent and believe you are reconciled to god by the death of christ that's the way it works with us and god but with us and people we both have responsibilities now, a beautiful picture of reconciliation is found in, in Genesis, the first book of the Bible. Jacob and Esau. Genesis chapters 32 and 33. Let me just tell you the story. Jacob stole Esau's birthright. Esau vowed to kill Jacob. For many years, Jacob feared for his life should he meet up with his brother because he had said he would kill him. At one point in time, many years later, he meets up with his brother. He hears that he's coming his way with an army of men. In, in, in a sense, Jacob was stuck between a rock and a hard place. Laban on one side and, and Esau coming towards him on the other. He was boxed in. And he has this idea, I'm going to appease my brother's wrath. I'm going to send him a present. And he sends group after group of gifts. And his family he even sends in front of him. What a brave guy, huh? And... Uh, and then he has an encounter with God. It's the, it's the when Jacob wrestled the angel. God uh, wrestled him into submission, but he clung to God for a blessing. So he emerged victorious. But he comes uh, into the next day, and he's a changed man. And he goes ahead of the group. And he faces his brother man to man. What's he going to do? When they finally see each other, Esau has no desire to kill his brother. So they were reconciled. They were at peace. His brother accepted his gift, signifying the reconciliation had taken place. But it shows what can happen when two parties just get tired of being at odds. When, when two parties decide it's not worth it any longer to keep a feud going. They mature enough through the years 
and find that love can overcome a bitter past. And God gives them tender hearts towards each other. Uh, they, they desire, in fact, in the story, if you read it in Genesis 32 and 33, Jacob deeply desired to, to gain his brother's favor, grace. <laughs> and they wished each other well. Um, see, when you get tired of all the strife and hassle and energy uh, holding a grudge takes, you're ready to let it go. So ask forgiveness of those you've wronged. Forgive those who've wronged you. Repent of your hatred of them. Stop trying to get even. Just let it go. It's the idea of what Jesus said and what uh, love your neighbor as yourself. (laughs) The great command, love God and then love your neighbor. Give them the same leeway you give yourself. Be gracious to them as you are gracious to yourself. Cut them the same slack you cut yourself. See, repentance and forgiveness are very painful and difficult tasks. But get this. They're also a privilege. A privilege. See, the only reason you can even think of forgiving someone here on earth is because of what Jesus did on the cross for you. As you grasp the magnitude of God's gift, what he has done, then you can offer a gift to someone else that reflects his love. Let's pray. Lord God, we, just, we want to come to you now and we want to thank you for your amazing love and forgiveness towards us. And Father, I come to you on, the basis, on behalf of my brothers and sisters in Christ right here in this room as they wrestle with the difficult and painful task of forgiveness and repentance. I pray, Lord, you'd help them to see it as a privilege that we, the only reason we can even think of forgiving somebody is because of what you did on the cross in Christ. The only reason we can extend forgiveness is because of what you've already extended to us. Lord, help us to know the magnitude of your gift so that we can in some small way offer a gift to someone else that is a reflection of your covenant love. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.